Last week, we launched a brand new series, and it's a short one. Last week was the series opener, and next week is the big finale. It's just a three-week series, but it's so important. Because what we're focusing on in this series is the mission that the founder of Christianity gave to his people. As Jesus of Nazareth prayed for those who would follow him, he said these words. These are words we looked at last week. They come out of John chapter 17. He says, as you have sent me into the world, Jesus is talking to his father. He said, as you have sent me, I'm sending them into the world. Our mission as a church, it's built around that. It's built around the mission that Jesus gave his followers. And here's the words that we use at our church. Our mission is to help more people become more like Christ in authentic community. And we don't want to give lip service to any of those things. Every one of those things matter. More people more like Christ, in authentic community. If we even have two of the three, it's not enough. If if we're not a church that's serious about trying to reach more people, then we're going to fall into the the statistics that we're seeing. Um, Some of the stats that I've seen are for the Twin Cities area, 86% of churches have either plateaued or are declining. 86% are just growing old together and dying. If you don't have more people, if you're not serious about trying to reach more people, something's off. It's not going to work. Um, that was uh, something we talked about before. Well, next week, Pastor Jason's going to press into the importance of, of inviting people into authentic community. Authentic community. The Bible is filled with what we call the one another's. The one another's. There's so many of those in the scriptures. And how many of you know you can't one another alone? All right? So if you're not a part of an authentic community, you can't do authentic Christianity. Well, last week what I did is we were introducing this thing and and talking about the series and talking about how you need all three of these. I had a three-legged music stand because we said, you know, if you don't have even one of these, the whole thing just comes crashing down. All your good intentions about being a a Jesus-centered church will come crashing down. So I didn't want to bring that back this week. I, I brought something else instead is we're going to focus this week on the more like Christ part of our mission. So I actually brought a couple things here in my little box. One of them comes from a movie I saw recently. It's not a kid's movie, but um, if you're old enough, there's a movie that's out, it's just shattering all kinds of records, called Black Panther. So I saw this movie, and in the movie, this is part of a super suit that the guy's got. He's got this super suit, and it's a pretty cool super suit, because bullets can bounce off this thing explosions don't hurt him when he's wearing this. Even armored rhinos cannot stop you if you're wearing the super suit. So if this thing was real, how many of you would be like, I would want one of those, all right? They're amazing. And especially if you had somebody that was in the military, if you had a dad, a mom, a brother, a sister, a friend, can you imagine if you could gift them with something that could protect them? Wouldn't that be awesome? Right? So if this thing was real, we would want this. If nothing else, going up to Boundary Waters for mosquito protection, wouldn't that be like, yeah, this thing is awesome. So if this super suit was real, this would be something, we're pretty much in agreement, this would be cool, I would want one of these, it would not be hard to sell one of these. Okay. Now the next thing is a hard sell, and I know because I actually tried to sell these. Um, When I was an assistant track coach in New Ulm, Minnesota, our head coach had this great idea of how we're going to make money. But his great idea wasn't the great ideas that actually worked, like selling candy bars, selling pizzas, those kind of things. He said, we're going to have, we're going to sell hats. And without consulting any of us, any of the coaching staff or any of the students, he designed the hats himself. And uh, this is 19, 
1893, before trucker hats, you know, came back in. So this is a replica of the hat. Um, it, it actually, this looks better than the ones that, that they had. He had these hats. They had the, the worst looking logo of an of a eagle you could possibly find. Total old school. No one would have wanted that even if that was in the hat. And then the font they picked was from the, like the New York Times, the headline kind of font. So he's like, okay, now I'll go sell these hats. And we're like, I can't sell these hats. No one wants to buy these hats. Rich grandma who buys everything that they do for fundraiser wouldn't want to buy these hats. You know, as an assistant coach, I was a distance coach. I could get our students to run up and down Center Street Hill in New Ulm. If you've ever been to New Ulm, that is, that's like Pike's Peak, right? We could motivate them to run up and down that hill. We could not motivate them to sell one of these hats. Why? Because they were ugly track hats. No one wanted to buy ugly track hats. My point in saying this today is we're going to talk about what it means to be more like Christ. More like Christ is like this. It's not like this. And, and people can confuse that. Because a lot of people, if you try to share Jesus and you get the blank looks on their face, it's because a lot of people have never had an experience where they've encountered the real one. Or even have an idea what that looks like. Let me give you a couple other examples um, besides hats uh, of this. Um, there's what I call bad church coffee Jesus that a lot of people have been introduced to. Um, my introduction to coffee was in a church basement, styrofoam cup, um, one of, out of the most old church coffee pots that they just kind of keep filled. I think they just keep adding water and more coffee grinds to them, you know? And so from what I understand of coffee connoisseurs, uh, coffee is better than that. But that's for a lot of people. That's their experience with Christianity and church because they get second rate. They come and, and you've got second-rate coffee and you have second-rate music and you have second-rate messages and programming is second-rate. The community that they experience, they're like, people are more real at the bar than when, you, than when we come to church. And when it comes to looking at the needs of the world and our world has really needs, a lot of times people from the outside, they look and they say, okay, we're living in a world where thousands of people are dying from starvation. We're living in a world where thousands of humans are trafficked. We're living in a world where the number of refugees is exploding. And what are you doing as a church? All you're doing is adopting a highway, really. And, and they look at us from the outside and they say, okay, you say that he is your king? And this is how you treat your king, with less than your best. And so I can understand why a lot of people, they would look at that and go, I don't want a part of that. I don't want that Jesus. I was driving, here's another example. I was uh, of a different type of imposter Jesus, I guess you could say. I was driving to school with my daughter, Emma, and we were talking about Christ. And, and, and we thought, you know, a lot of people think of Jesus as comfort dog Jesus. Comfort dog Jesus, right? Who wouldn't love comfort dog Jesus, right? Uh, you know, I, now for the record, nobody enters into our pain like Jesus of Nazareth. And that is such a good thing. That is such a good thing. But here's the deal. Our good news is better than that. Because we have a God that does more than feels bad when we feel bad. We have a real Savior who those who believe in him are going to wipe every tear from our eye. Well, he's going to wipe them someday. And it's even better than that. Because we have a God of justice. And for those who are crying out for justice... Justice will come. There is a day when this Savior is going to come back and is going to make all things as they should be. So there are all of these things that are true about Christ, but people are seeing imposters all around them. They're getting presented something that is less than true or outright misleading. Here's some more imposters. 
There's a distant dogma Jesus. There is killjoy Jesus. There's politically weaponized Jesus. There is health and wealth Jesus. There is feed me, but don't ask me to exercise Jesus. There is forgive me, but don't ask me to repent Jesus. There is conforms to culture Jesus. There is conforms to my subculture Jesus. And there is God only shows up if I get goosebumps Jesus. These are not the real Jesus. And this morning, as best I can, with the little time we have, I want to challenge us to pursue the Christ who is rather than one that conforms to our expectations or to our culture or to our way of thinking. Not an imposter. Because that is the Jesus that Paul was able to sing praises of in prison. That is the Jesus that on the day when our strength is failing, when the end is near and our time has come, we can sing his goodness because we know the end is not the end. That's what we want to press into. All right, so we're going to dive in. There's a place to write this next thing down in your notes. I want to encourage you to. Good news fuels our mission. We got good news to share. We are not pushing ugly track hats here. We got something that if people really understood it, Their deepest part of who they are wants this. If you know Jesus of Nazareth, you can connect people with the life that they long for most. Jesus compared the outcome of a life that's connected to his with good and lasting fruit. Well, how do we experience more of that good and lasting fruit in our lives? If I wanted to just do a simple thing, oh man, it's going to be a snowy week, not many people showing up, let me just give a simplistic sermon. Oh, just pray about it. Just pray about it. I would encourage you to write this down. I believe this with all my heart. It is foolish to pray for good fruit when we're not connected to the vine. It's just foolish praying that God would make us more like Christ without abiding in him. And we're going to press into this word abiding today. Praying that God's going to make you more like Christ without abiding in him, as the scripture instructs, it is like hacking off a branch of a grapevine and then asking God to produce good fruit from it. Can I get an amen to that? Nobody would do that, right? That is foolish. You would not go to a grapevine, cut it off, bring it somewhere else, set it down and say, oh, dear Lord. Would you bless this vine? Would you make it fruitful? Nobody would do that, right? Nobody would do that. And yet, and this is me talking to myself, so if you hear any passion here, it's because I'm talking to myself. And yet, I often live lives, a life that is functionally disconnected from the author and perfecter of my faith. I'm so quick to do that. And then when we do that, when we cut ourselves off from the, from the source, when we cut ourselves off in the way we live our lives, when we're not abiding in him, when we do that, we, we then sometimes wonder why our inner world is filled with fear and insecurity or greed and jealousy or guilt and shame or anxiety and depression. We cut ourselves off from the source and then we wonder why. We experience those things internally. Or we do this. We cut our households off from the source of guidance and strength, at least functionally. We live a life that really, without a couple check-ins now and then, that is really cut off from the vine. And then we wonder why, that we're not going, growing closer to the ones we love most, or we wonder why our lives, that we're going so fast, but we don't seem to be getting any closer to where we really want to go. 
Or we do this. We fail to connect everything we do as unto the Lord. That's easy to do. We can forget that. Where we're just doing our work as work. We're treating our, our jobs as jobs. We're treating our sports as sports. We're treating our school as school. Instead of recognizing that abiding in Christ means whatever you do in word or deed, do it all as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, go after it with all your heart as serving the Lord, not human masters. That's, that's abiding. And then we wonder why. We fail to do that. We wonder why. Our, our school, our jobs, our activities seem so disconnected from faith. And on a snowy day like this one, I'm reminded how easy it is to do with church. You know how easy it is for us to put the pieces together. Do we have the right people, the right volunteers in place? Do we have a message that follows this outline? You know, we have the, some songs. Instead of going, God, what do you want to do? What do you want to say? You know, and really asking for and seeking his wisdom and presence and power. Well, in this short series, again, it's only three weeks and we're in week two. In this short series, we're going to focus on things that Jesus said. And the scriptures that we've been focusing in on are from John chapter 13 to John 17. And the significance of this passage is this is the longest recorded um, message of Jesus on his last night with his disciples. And there's some unique content here with John that we don't find anywhere else. And one of the things that Jesus spends a lot of time on is pressing into the metaphor of a vine and branches. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that is the key to experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promised. He said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. He says that in John. And then later we find this right here. It's, it's about this, this whole idea of remaining connected to the vine. I started reading ahead for a series on anxiety that we're going to be doing this summer. And one of you, possibly, um, sent in a connection card. You said, there is this woman, she's a, a Christian, who's in the area of cognitive neuroscience. And you really got to check her out. So I grabbed one of her books, and I read this just yesterday. Um, she's been in that field for 30 years. And this is what she says about self-help versus remaining connected to the vine. She says, the billion-dollar self-help industry does not have sustainability because it misses the basic elements required for success and change. Primarily, it is not connected to the vine. These practitioners try to teach successful living without the originator of successful living. Which is why we quote a lot of books and stuff, but we always anchor what we're talking about to God's word. Because Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. So let's see what he has to say about all these things. So if you have your Bibles with you, let's uh, open up to John chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to spend our time here in John 15 today. Um, as you're turning there, I want to do two things. First, I want to do is let you know that we have a stack of Bibles there on your way out. We'd encourage you to grab one if, uh, if you don't have a Bible at home. And way to go, team. I mean, we, again, we didn't know if we were going to have anything set up today. And so way to go, getting Bibles out and sound and lights and everything like that. Can we express our appreciation for, I mean, it's just amazing, amazing. Way to go. So, um, great job, team. Because that was the first thing I want to do. The second thing, I want to give you a little bit of background, if you're not familiar, with the vine and the branches. Because we're in what's called the New Testament section of the Bible. It's in the Old Testament, too. And it's really, really important to bring these things together. In the Old Testament, the vine represented Israel. 
In the Old Testament, the vine represented Israel, so much so that when the people of Jesus' day, when the Jews revolted against Rome and they had their independence for just a couple years, when they printed their own coins, they put a vine on there because they're like, this is us. We are the vine. And that vine motif, it didn't just show up in their scriptures and in their coins. The temple in Jerusalem had this huge gold vine inside of it. Here's a description from one of my sources. It said this, above the curtain in the temple grew a gigantic grapevine of pure gold representing Israel. Wealthy citizens would bring gifts and then these gifts would add to the vine, like making grapes or leaves. And these would be added by metal workers to the ever-growing vine. The first century historian Josephus claims that some of these grape clusters were the height of a man. So in the temple, there's this massive gold vine. So when Jesus is going to be talking about the vine, there's this rich history in scripture. There's all these object lessons all around him. And there's some scholars who even speculate that when Jesus said the words we're about to read, he was actually passing a grapevine. The reason they say that is in the passage right before this. In fact, the words right before the words we're about to read, Jesus says to them, hey, okay, let's go out of here. They were in an upper room. Let's go. And then this comes. So there's a possibility he's even saying these words as they're actually um, going past a vine. So here we go. John 15, verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You already are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, again, if you guys could leave this, the words up on the screen for just a little bit, we're going to unpack this. There's some pretty interesting things here. In some of his final words to his disciples, Jesus makes the last of the I am statement that John records throughout his gospel. John does a whole bunch of these things where he records Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. There's many of these. Some Lent, I want to take us through all of them together. It'd be really, really cool. In this final I am statement that John records, Jesus says, I am the vine. And then Jesus does some things that are so subtle, they're easy to miss, especially in the English translation. The word that John uses for prunes there in verse 2 isn't the normal Greek word that you would use for pruning. Pruning was a big deal. Everyone knew about vines. They'd cut them, they'd hack them up. They'd, They'd prune them for effectiveness. But this isn't the word you'd usually use for that. There is intentional wordplay going on here. And you can see in in the transliteration there how closely those words look more in the original Greek. John uses, uh, the word John uses for prunes in verse 2 looks and sounds a whole lot like the word for clean that John uses in the next verse. Again, there's intentional wordplay here. There's a link that John is making between, that Jesus makes, between pruning and purity. Between pruning and purity. Both of these things are important. If you're going to bear good fruit, you're going to be having good results, which pruning does. And some of those good results are going to involve a holy life, a life that is God-honoring. This is especially fascinating when you start to connect some of the dots that John and the other gospel writers connect between Jesus and Moses. 
bringing up the vine reference would invoke Old Testament passages like this one out of Psalm 80. You, meaning God, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. God called a people and he rescued them from slavery. But when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt, they failed to produce fruit. Stay with me on this. This is all going to come together in a second. They failed to produce fruit. And one of the things that the prophets called them out for is, hey, one of the main ways you're not producing fruit is you're not caring for the poor and the marginalized. The other thing that you're not doing is you're not living a God-honoring life. These are the two main things where you guys are missing it. You're not caring for the poor and marginalized, and you're not living a God-honoring life. These are the two big accusations we have against you. That's Old Testament. That's with Moses. And then light bulbs start to go off because I think about the New Testament, a, a, a verse we quote all the time from James, James 127. Pure religion is this. If you're going to sum up religion, if you're going to get it right, it is what? Care for the widow and orphan and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. It's, it's, it's these two things, Old Testament and new. Let's continue on with the passage because the, the connections even get more than that. Verse 4, Abide in me, Jesus says, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing that really matters. The Greek word translated here as abide, this is really fun. The t- Greek word translated here as abide can also be translated as dwell. As dwell. And just a chapter earlier, in John 14, 2, Jesus says to his disciples, In my Father's house, there are many rooms or dwelling places. And I'm going there to my Father's house to prepare a place for you. The word translated in John 15 as abide is the verb form of the phrase that we translate as rooms or dwelling places in that other passage. So, if you're hearing this in Greek, the way it was written, you would hear Jesus say, in my father's house, there are many dwelling places and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And then just a little while later, you'd hear Jesus say, now as you wait for that day, when you're going to dwell with me in eternity, abide with me now. Dwell with me now. Take up residence where I am. Stick close to me. The kingdom of God is near. Do you see how this connects these two things? Whew. The word for abiding and dwelling doesn't just appear there. It appears several times in John's gospel. One of the places it appears is in John chapter 6. And this is after 5,000 people are miraculously fed. And the crowd says, we want to make Jesus the king. We'll do it by force if we must. Jesus slips away from that and they track him down. And they start saying, hey, Jesus, remember that thing you did where you fed us? Could you do that every day? Because, you know, Moses did that every day with manna. We think you could pull that off too. Jesus sees right through this crowd. He recognizes they they just want free food. And then Jesus says these words. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
And if you know the story, most of the crowd hears words like this and they're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, we don't want anything to do with this. And it says many went away. The crowd was looking for free meals. And Jesus pointed them to a deeper hunger that their fleshly cravings were masking. Let me say that again. The crowd was looking for free meals. And Jesus pointed them to a deeper hunger that their fleshly cravings were masking. All right, let's go back to our text that we were looking at today. And as we do, I want to point out another connection that I never made before. There are all kinds of links in the Gospels between Jesus and Moses. And I never noticed how these final instructions that Jesus gives in the closing chapters of John mirror the final instructions that Moses gave the people in the closing chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses says, now I've set before you blessings and curses. God's commandments lead to life. Disobedience leads to death. Choose life. Just a chapter after telling his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus uses language that sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 30. In fact, if you're a note taker, I would encourage you, write down Deuteronomy 30, write down John 15, read Deuteronomy 30, which are the words of Moses, his last words to his people. Read those words and then read Jesus' last words to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. Look at how many of those words, commandment, love, all these things, they're, they're almost the same. Almost the same. Jesus says this in John 15, verses 6 through 10. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And even as Moses said, the commandments that I've set before you are good. And if you love the Lord and walk in his ways, you will find that God's faithfulness is unlike anything that any other idol or God or earthly ruler can deliver. Even as Moses said that, Jesus says this, John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And if you've ever had a season of your life where you were authentically abiding with Christ, where you were experiencing a connection with him. You know that this is true. There is no deeper sense of peace and joy than that. It's why when some people go away to an amazing Christian camp or have this great retreat experience, it's why we don't want to leave. Because something about that feels so right. Because externally, we're living as God wants us to live and we're serving and we're caring for people the way that God taught us. And there's something that feels so right about that instead of living selfishly. And then internally, we're experiencing fruit too, the fruit of the Spirit. Peace and joy and so much more. This is why I can say good news fuels 
our mission because this is good news. This is the life that we long for most. We aren't offering the world or ourselves an ugly track hat. And the world thinks it gets this. It thinks it gets us, but it doesn't. How do I know that? Because when I, off, when I ordered ugly track hat as a joke, you know what Amazon sent me? They sent me this, word for word, right out of my inbox, like 24 hours later. Dear Chris Studensky, we have a few fashion recommendations for you based on your purchase history. Here are some more ugly hats that we think you would love. Amazon doesn't know me. They think they know me, but they've seen the superficial thing and they're drawing all these conclusions from it. And if that's Amazon missing the mark, think how much, think of the resources they have. Think of these companies, Apple, Facebook, Google, YouTube. They've got, for all practical purposes, as unlimited resources as you're going to find in this world. They, they've got the top researchers on the planet. If anyone should know us better than we know ourselves, it should be them. And yet, what are we seeing in the news all around us, in the headlines and also when you drill deeper? We are seeing that they are coming to grips with the fact that they don't know us the way they thought they did. And there's the big headlines that we see about they're learning that the hard way through legal action. But then there's the others. You're seeing these confessions coming out of all these companies where they're saying, we are sorry. We gave people these products and it was irresponsible because we didn't stop and think of the implications of what this is really going to do to them and what's going to do their families and what's going to do to our culture. We're seeing it that they had good intentions perhaps, but they don't understand us the way they think they understand us. There's one who does. And yet we choose to abide in the world that they've created. If you want to see what abiding looks like, watch people with their devices. They abide with their devices. Or watch some people when it comes to their work. They abide with their work. Or look at some people when it comes to their sports. They abide with their sports or they abide with their academics. Instead of saying, I abide with Christ and he's going to flow into me in all these other areas. And I'm abiding with him as I'm honoring him through my sports, my academics, through my work, through these tools that he's put in my hands. It is Christ who knows us better than we know ourselves. There is one who knows that our deepest wants, our deepest wants aren't the latest gadgets or games. We really want something more that those things promise. Our deepest wants aren't a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife. Our deepest wants is something deeper than that. Our deepest want is not to win the tournament. And I really like winning tournaments. I really do. But that's not our deepest wants. We really want something more. Our deepest want is in a higher salary. We really want something more. Here's the thing that separates Jesus from all of those. Jesus is not a means to another end. He is the way, the truth, the life. And in a world where digital hits provide temporary highs that keep us from embracing reality, 
in a world where cultural currents pull us under and blur our vision and plug our ears to the truth as if we were trying to listen to Christ from the bottom of the ocean floor. And in a world where thousands of shouting attention seekers distract from the still small voice. In a world like that, why should we expect that anyone would want to hear the truth about Jesus? The only shot that we've got, at least the way that God designed it, is this. And I got this from Caitlin. There's a place right this in your notes. Does your life answer the question, why Jesus? Can people see it? Why should I be more like Jesus? Can they see it? Can they see that this actually works? And Jesus reminds us, even if your life does resemble Jesus, don't expect me batting a thousand on this one, because he didn't either. There are going to be people that reject what you see. Jesus said this himself, John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There will always be those who feel threatened by those who stand in the way of their agenda. There will always be those who love darkness more than light. There will always be those who lash out when they begin to feel conviction. There will always be these situations where the more you pursue authentic faith, the more you're going to experience confrontations that confirm our ultimate struggle is not against flesh and blood. But if people are going to reject Christ, let's have them reject the real thing instead of ugly track hat Jesus. Does that make sense? As much as it depends on us with God's help, may they see the real thing rather than some imposter. As a church, we're doing the best we can to keep refining a tool. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't yet, take out your notes, please, and take a look at the bottom here. This is a tool that we've been working on and that we're going to continue to work on as something that will try to help us make what it means to abide in Christ, what it means to become a follower of his, less vague. We've got six essentials of discipleship that we've identified here, and we've got some progressions that we believe are God-honoring ones. And what I want to encourage you to do is to consider what, what is your next step. And that's the last blank we've got for you today. What is your next step? And your next step in 2018, this could be the year that you make that significant next step. As in your next step could be, okay, this list, I'm in. I'm in. Where do I start? God, I want to offer you my entire life. I want to give this a shot. I'm in. That's a huge step. For some of you, your step might be the first step of a prodigal returning home. Where you've been, okay, I knew this, but I was going this way. I was just living my own life. Maybe this is the year where you say, no. God, I'm going to turn back towards you. What's my next step? Your next step could be like that first step on your first run after you've made that commitment to say, I'm going for a marathon. And I want to become more intentional about my walk. I want to get someplace. I don't want to just kind of be randomly jogging. I want to get someplace. Find a next step that can bring you intentionally closer to that. And for some of you, it might be a first step towards your next degree. You know, like a college degree, master's, doctorate, where you're like, okay, I could have written this thing myself, but I want to go deeper. What's my next step? If more people aren't becoming more like Christ in authentic community, we're not fulfilling that mission that God's called us to. And if that's the case, then the world is missing out because all these things we've been describing 
are things that God wants to offer to this world through us. That's the way he chose to do it. The world misses out and we miss out. Because I tell you, life on, if you're on the left side of all these continuums, I wouldn't want that faith either. Life is found as we move forward in each of these areas. So I ask you, what's your next step? Jesus said, follow me. You can only do that one step at a time, right? So let's take our next step together. I want to encourage you possibly to even circle where you think you are in each of these lists and identify what your next step would be. And then let's seal with this with a song. The worship band's going to come forward. They're going to seal with a song. And, and as uh, they do come and get into place, I want to leave you with an image from that Black Panther movie. I'll, I'll try not to give any spoilers here, but there's a scene that I think is relevant to us. So in this movie, there's a nation called Wakanda. And it is an amazing place. They have a lot to offer the rest of the world. They've got a power source that's unlike anything on earth. They've got answers to problems that everybody faces. They've got a community where there's no poor among them. And a wise and powerful king who sits on their throne. And it's really interesting if you watch the movie. And again, it's not for, for kids, but if, if you're a little older and you go see it. Um, watch the crowd scenes. Because these people have higher tech than we've got. But watch the crowd scenes. They're not all like this. They're engaging with one another. It's pretty cool. There's also this. The, 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 in the movie, the, the nation of Wakanda, they are really connected with this amazing creation that we live in. And I think how different that is from, from most of us in America. REI, I get mailings from them. They just sent me a stat that they said Americans now only spend 5% of our lives outside. On a day like today, maybe that makes sense. But, you know... <laughs> Only 5%. There's so much to see out there. So this nation has so much to give. They've got so much that the world wants. And they're about to share that with the world. And so the king goes to Oakland, California. And he goes to this impoverished area where there's some kids playing basketball. And they don't know it's the king of Wakanda who's got all of this to offer. And one of the kids sees all of a sudden the, one of the king's cool airplane, spaceship things kind of lands and they're like, that is cool. And they make a connection that this king is connected to that. So the kid comes up to the king and he says, who are you? Wouldn't it be amazing? This God who has so much to give was doing something so real in our lives. People are looking at us saying, who are you? Let's pray. Father, as we seal this time with this amazing song, help us to not just see the words, but may those words become part of us, become part of our heart's cry, that you would make us more like Jesus. Amen.